It's FAQ NYC Offcycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, recording this while sitting in the industry city studio of Rusty Zimmerman as he's turning my face for radio into an oil painting portrait as part of his free portrait project, in the course of which he also ends up collecting oral histories. After a previous Crown Heights edition, he's presently painting the people of South Brooklyn, a portrait of a place through its people. Rusty, this is awesome. Thank you for having me. And let's jump right in. Uh, How'd you get started with these free portraits? How's that gone? And how's it evolved to date? And of course, how can people participate as subjects or supporters of this project? Gosh, well, um, I guess first and foremost, thank you for for having me on your program. It's a pleasure to be here in in my own office. To answer your question, um, the project was founded in 2015 in Crown Heights um, from a selfish place. I wanted to be a better oil painter. I wanted to be a better portrait painter. I wanted to be better at doing the thing that I do. Um, And I knew that would come with practice. I knew that the best practice in my experience was painting from life, uh, from having another human being sit right in front of me rather than, you know, something as tedious as copying a photograph. And um, I always said that painting from life tricked somebody into hanging out with me while I work. Um, I had some neighbors who'd seen me do what I do, see the end result and, uh, you know, find out that's what I did, see my website and say, I want a portrait. Can I have a portrait? Um, And then I told them what I would like to be paid. For my, for my time and effort for that product as, as that was how I wanted to make my living. And I could watch them sort of like, like the shoulders and the, and, the, and the muscles in the shoulders kind of like jump up and back and, and, and there's a, a hissing sound of like air between tongue and teeth as they're like assessing their finances and being like, well, damn, I didn't know things cost that much. Um, I guess that's out of my reach. And I don't know if it's like Jesuit or you know, socialist leanings in my upbringing or what have you. Um, but it hurt my heart to, to realize that I was making a thing that was historically just for wealthy and fancy people. And that by, you know, holding my price point for my, for my labor, for the product, for the thing I put into the world at a certain point that I was essentially perpetuating that. Uh, I didn't want the thing that I put into the world to just be for people of a certain set of means who could afford it. And and so I thought to myself, how could I take the thing that I do and make it breathtakingly accessible to a mass audience to give this thing that's historically just for uh, you know rich folks, notable figures, predominantly old white dudes and their heirs and heiresses, um, and just give it to everybody, regardless of their ability to pay for such a thing. I'll periodically tick my tongue like that, and that's to remind Harry, who's still sitting mid-portrait, uh, to drop the hand and bring your head back into position. There you are. All right, perfect. 
Um, so yeah, you, you've caught us uh, in this recording while we're painting Harry's portrait live. And how do the oral histories get involved with this? And uh, as you have, as you have uh, this, this uh, company while you're working? Um, the oral history component was, uh, was a happy accident. There is a, a woman back in the old neighborhood I was told about, I ask everybody, since we're getting a picture of this place, through its people, who would you say is the face of the neighborhood for you? Who do you think should get one of these 200 pictures, since I can only do so many in one year? And everybody would say, you know who you should get? My barber, my pastor, uh, my mom. And one gentleman said, you need Miss Clark. And uh, she lived over by Brower Park. Yolanda Clark was reputed to be 94 years of age at the time. Uh, lived on the south side of the park and was one back and four to the left of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps in Washington during his famous I Have Dream speech. And they said, you're not going to want to miss what this woman, you're going to want to hear what this woman had to say. And so I thought to myself, I, I wouldn't want to have to go home to my partner, my neighbors, and say, you should have heard the way she said what she said. You should have heard what she said. So I did a little research on an entry-level microphone that's seated next to Harry now, and um, started practicing recording. Uh, since I was not an audio editor by any stretch prior to this endeavor, and uh, learned about, you know, basic uh, audio recording stuff, and practiced on whoever sat in the chair before Ms. Clark. And while I did so, I found out that each person during each of these four-hour sittings, who had, you know, most of them came to me as strangers, each person had something remarkable to say. Each person had something that, you know, I certainly didn't know beforehand. Oftentimes it was something that I couldn't tell about them just by looking at them as a you know, stranger prior to that moment. And each person had something that was worth sharing. And so I started to just, I just kept recording everybody. And then fast forward to um, about halfway through, I met a gentleman uh, named Zahir Ali, who was an oral historian at the Brooklyn Historical Society. And he said, did you know that you are making an oral history of Crown Heights? I said, no, I did not know that. Um, but tell me more. And he gave me a little bit of advice from his world on how to do that. And, um, and the funny part is Miss Clark never showed up. Um, by the time I got through the string of neighbors it took to communicate with her, um, she said she didn't want to be in the picture because she was too old by then. She said, you should have gotten me when I was in my 50s. I was a stunner then. And I thought that was a, a damn shame to have somebody leave themselves out of the picture on account of what I think of as stupid vanity. Um, but um, I'm awfully glad that that prompted me to start this practice. Just to uh, paint a little more of the scene here, we're in this studio. Come back which is a big open space in Industry City where several of these paintings, about 15 of them, uh, people of South Brooklyn, are up on the walls. Right. 
Uh, we're on the second floor. It's raining. There's big box air conditioners that go out the window that the rain is falling on, so you may hear that drum beat. And across from us, on the second floor, uh, I'm looking out at a, uh, at a group of dancers practicing, who I think are the uh, Nets dancers, cheerleaders, I'm not sure what the uh, term is now, uh, practicing uh, across the street. So that is uh, our present moment in this Brooklyn. Um, so I know you painted a lot of regular people, so to speak, in the course of doing this. And I do have to ask about the Andrew Cuomo portrait I saw on your website and uh, if there's a, a story behind that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, once upon a time, uh, I came to New York City, August 11th, 2005, to be an illustrator, to make pictures for books and magazines, newspapers, um, posters for theater. And, um, you know, my, my big dreams along the way was a uh, cover of uh, Time magazine, a Rolling Stone, something like that. Um, but then, somewhere along the line, I got a, a phone call uh, around 2010, I guess. Um, art director by the name of Harvey Cohen called me out of nowhere, said he found me on the Freelancers Union when he searched Illustrator Brooklyn. He was an old school guy, worked for uh, Cuomo's father on the, the famous I Heart NY poster with uh, the now deceased uh, Milton Glaser. May he rest in peace and thank to him for all his work in the world. Um, and he said, uh, you know, not knowing him or any of that, he said, I have a candidate for office who would like an old timey poster that looks like a circa 1900 uh, campaign poster. Uh, would, and uh, I looked at your work, you look like you could do it. Um, would you be interested? And I said, well, you know, who's your guy? And he says, Andrew Cuomo. And I heard the name Mario. Again, I'm, I'm new in town, so I don't have a, a fabled New York history on me, under my belt. Um, but I said, sure, you know, got lowballed on the budget um, and uh, said yes and made this poster with a, uh, based on William Jennings Bryan campaign poster in uh, 1900 when he was running for president. Odd to, to base a poster on a, on a failed campaign, but... Um, it's fitting in a sense because 2005 is three years removed from Andrew Cuomo's first badly failed primary run for governor. Oh. And then he's setting up to try to win, which he does in 2006, when he runs for attorney general. But this is his first stretch in the political wilderness, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, um, I remember going to his office to meet, this is the one time we met in person, and I put on my best clean shirt. I split my time as a chef and a painter back then, so all my clothes had either paint or food on them. But I put on my best shirt and my, my slacks and shined my shoes, and I got turned away from the front entrance of the building because I rode up on a bicycle with a saddlebag, and, and they said, deliveries go around back, and I said, I'm here to meet with the attorney general, and I will be going up the main elevator, sir. And, um, and Andrew showed up in uh, a sweatshirt and jeans and white sneakers. And he was surprisingly um, open to feedback, suggestions on things in the poster that 
Uh, he had sketched out at 2 a.m. at his dining table um, what he would like in this picture. And I said, you know, with regard to one thing in the picture, I was like, that, that doesn't really make sense. Uh, and this other solution might. He said, your idea is better. Do that. And I was shocked because uh, I was terrified to, you know, speak anything to power, let alone truth. And um, anyhow, one of the, the key components was uh, a portrait oval in the middle of it all, flanked by the state flag, the U.S. flag, and some olive branches. And uh, that remained consistent for the two and a half other posters I made for the Cuomo campaign between 2012 and 2020. And, um, and we've talked about these posters a bit on the podcast. Okay. These are the, the very, I love them, old-timey ones with the, you know, text elements over the different parts and, uh, you know, the triumph over the curve. Although I, of the bridge. I should say, um, the one about the curve, the, um, the COVID mountain poster, not mine. Uh, no, I, I mean the, uh, the, the new New York working for you poster. Oh, gotcha. Uh, just referring generally to the, this might be Andrew's elements to that. I rem I'm trying to remember there was like a three headed beast coming yes, up from below tyranny, the Mario corruption Bridge, right? Greed or yeah, so it, was a, it was a three-headed hydra of like corruption and maybe apathy and greed. That sounds right. Yeah, a lot of heavy metaphor. <laughs> and look, the free portrait business doesn't sound like a uh, get-rich scheme exactly. No. And you no. are trying to make portraits, oil portraits, paintings that are accessible to the people. You worked as a waiter. You just want to talk a bit about... Uh, the other gigs you've done to be able to do your art here and what makes you want to uh, bang your head against that wall in this very fucking expensive city? That's a great question. Um, thank you for asking. Um, I feel my wife asking the same question as we now uh, recently married back in May. Mazda. And uh, thank you, thank you. And... Um, and we discussed, you know, now that we are financially bound to one another as well as lawfully wedded, um, what are you going to do if you don't uh, raise all this money? Uh, context is I'm, I'm raising $113,000 to, uh, to fund this practice, uh, to cover the rent, the paint, the, the, the paper, the, the frames, the, the keeping myself alive to, to draw a salary from this work as this is my full-time job for the next year, exhibiting this, fundraising, posting to social media, schlepping, you know, 15 pictures at a time uh, in a car on, on the back of a bicycle um, to different venues throughout South Brooklyn to share this work. Um, and I was at a social function the other day and a friend of mine was introducing me and my work to his partner. He said, yeah, Rusty got this grant to, to do this work. And I said, no, I haven't gotten the grant. Uh, I'd like to get the grant. I've applied for many grants, everything from the Brooklyn Arts Council to the Ford Foundation um, and a few others in between. And, um, and it's, it's kind of a by hook or by crook effort that I am committed to, um, partially because I've done it once before in Crown Heights. I raised uh, about $60,000 over the course of a year and a half to run that uh, project and fund that work. 
And what I hadn't factored in that time was um, a salary, really. So I, you know, I got by. Um, but um, as a person north of 40 with, uh, with a wife and two new stepkids to uh, help support, it behooves me to, to raise my rates somewhat um, to afford a living and something like a retirement fund. Some of the other gigs you mentioned that I've done in the past, um, gosh, I, I oftentimes prior to this project refer to my work as an octagon of side hustles. So there's not really any primary one thing that I would do. I do everything from assist on floral design, paint pictures on commission, drive a truck, um, paint scenery and props for theater, film, and television. I was a catering chef for a little while out of a one-bedroom apartment in Crown Heights. And really anything that uh, anybody asked me to help out on, officiating weddings, um, so long as it wasn't selling cigarettes to children or profiting off of war and destruction, then I'd be open to it. So my colleague, Rachel Holliday-Smith from the city, I believe when she was a reporter at DNA Info, was uh, one of the first, if not the, to uh, draw attention to what you were doing in Crown Heights at the time. And I was chatting with her a bit, and Rachel mentioned uh, that, that uh, she just sort of sees you everywhere and at the unlikeliest places, that you are a guy about New York City. And I'm wondering, with all the people you've painted, how often you run into them out in the world, if this uh, starts to feel like a, uh, a smaller town to you in certain ways as, uh, as, as people come into your orbit, and then perhaps you find them out in the broader orbit of the city. Um, you know, I, I can, um, I can stand by that. I, I, you know, big and endless thanks to Rachel Holiday Smith for, for coming to my studio and to, uh, to Danny Rivoli over at, although I think he's Dan Rivoli, um, in his professional life. Uh, Danny was my neighbor. And, uh, when I asked, you know, I'm starting this thing, who should I talk to? He said, talk to Rachel Holiday Smith. Here's her info. I'll let her know to expect your call. Um, and my world has gotten a lot smaller. We had this uh, premiere of a documentary film um, a woman named Becky Bintram made after sitting for her portrait. She said, I'd like to try my hand at documentary film. Would you like to, would you mind if I followed you around with camera for the remainder of this Crown Heights bit? And, you know, fast forward to August of 2016, the Brooklyn Museum finally kind of agrees to show some of this work on one of their first Saturday engagements uh, with the stipulation that we can't hang anything on the wall at the museum, which sounded like a supreme challenge. But then they said, you can have a video. And I, I said to Becky, can you have your film ready for premiere at the Brooklyn Museum on August 9th, I think it was, 2016. And she did, and it went swimmingly. But all this to say, uh, Shauna Anderson, uh, interfaith minister, lives on uh, St. Mark's in Franklin, and Donna Yvette Mossman of the Crown Heights Tenant Union kind of both stood up in the audience that night, you know, when asked about, you know, how this has changed their perception of their neighborhood. You know, they, they said, well, 
I think they, they've made a lot more friends. And they said, Rusty, you must have made 200 new friends. And that's how many portraits you did. Right, yeah, 200 portraits over the course of the year, just like we're doing over here in South Brooklyn this year. And um, sometimes I have to clarify the difference between a friend and an associate. Um, but, uh, you know, because I don't want to be presumptuous, like I can call on anybody and be like, you know what grinds my gears? Or like, I'm having a hard time. Could you spot me a tenor? But I certainly have a lot more, a lot more folks around town that I run into. I remember one lady came in and she said, I might throw up in your trash can um, because I'm newly pregnant and um, I'm not sure which way this is going to go. Um, but um, just fair warning. And, um, and so I got to you know, meet the bun in the oven, so to speak, in a stroller about a year later. And seeing the passage of time, following up with folks, um, as folks who sit for these portraits, the, uh, the face-to-face, it kind of, two chairs looking across at each other with one person as a central focus, it kind of mirrors a, a therapeutic environment, I think. And I think, uh, while it's not intentional, a lot of folks tend to just kind of unload whatever's going on with them. And, um, and so I end up privy to the intimate details of people's lives. And, um, and so I get to check in with them later on and be like, how's that thing you were talking about? Um, what's it like now? So, Children's Museum, Brooklyn Borough Hall, you mentioned the documentary screening at the Brooklyn Museum. And you were also talking about the complications of getting support Mm. institutional support for this. This It's the free portrait project. You do note that people want to support the work and can afford to. It's appreciated or part of it. You were telling me earlier that, that somebody contributed uh, like a good deal of supplies, for yes. instance. Oh my gosh. And uh, can I jump in just to say some thank yous? Yeah. Um, gosh, I want to thank the folks over at John Creech Production and Design, or Design and Production rather, JCDP over in Flatbush donated uh, a whole case of these foam core boards that the, uh, the canvas paper is taped to that let me just pick up and move around 20 paintings while they're wet. Um, and they stay wet for at least a couple of weeks, like the surface layer. Yeah, oil well, paint takes forever. a while to dry. Yeah. Um, and then the paper was donated by the folks at Artists and Craftsmen, uh, cooperatively run uh, Brooklyn Art Supply Store. And, um, and then the paint, was donated by uh, Blick Art Materials uh, back in uh, 2015. And um, not knowing how much paint to ask for, they just sent me a ton. And a lot of it I'm still using today. Um, and then, of course, you know, shout out to, to the nice folks at Industry City who accepted my proposal uh, to say, how would you like to let me set up shop here for one year uh, to run this work? And then uh, thankfully they, they said yes and gave me a a deeply subsidized space within which to work, uh, to do this work here. Um, my only stipulations that I gave them were that it be with natural light, uh, which is integral for painting, ideally facing north, which thankfully it does. Um, 
you, you didn't ask to be facing the Brooklyn Nets dancers. I did not. Uh, I, um, I tend to keep my back uh, to the window just to, to stay focused on my work and whoever's in the chair. But um, yeah, natural light, ADA accessibility uh, for folks with limited mobility and seniors to be able to participate. Because I did end up with a 94-year-old in the chair, Mr. Osceola Fletcher. And uh, the stories that he had to share uh, were so amazing that to think that they might not have been accessible because I was on a fourth floor in Crown Heights and had there been a stairs and no elevator, it wouldn't have worked out. Um, and proximity to public transit is why I selected this place as a, a target destination uh, to host us because I can't have this project be something that people are excluded from participating in because uh, it's in a transit desert. So we were talking earlier, and something for listeners to potentially tune in for, about some of the stories you've recorded and collected potentially getting shared as an episode of the podcast. Mm. So that's not, that's not set in stone at all. We just had a loose conversation, but I'll bring it up here as something I'm hopeful that uh, you may be hearing on FAQ NYC on a coming Sunday. Um, some of those amazing stories or parts of them. And then Rusty's putting up the full audio on his SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let me clarify just for a moment. Uh, it's a uh, partial audio on the SoundCloud uh, segments because each of these recordings is four plus hours. Ah. And I can't imagine anybody having the, the physical tolerance uh, to, to make it through that much content. So I take a juicy clip, so to speak, uh, uh, something that I find remarkable and the, the, the subject that day is, is all right with them sharing is um, we were talking about Leonard Cohen earlier, that, that notion of a, a flake of one's life um, to, to treat somebody to that um, and then share that along with their portrait on SoundCloud and then post a QR code in person at in-person exhibitions throughout South Brooklyn over the course of the next year um, so that folks can zap that with their phone and it bounces to where it is on SoundCloud and then folks can hear about Harry Siegel and his relationship to his kids and his neighborhood. Um, so you can go from the portrait to the... Uh, to exactly, the so they can hear your voice through your face and then if it's at one of the receptions where everybody's there in the room, they can spot you coincidentally wearing that same blue jacket or, you know, black t-shirt and be like, that's that guy. And I just heard him talk about this incident when he was young in the neighborhood. And uh, I can walk up and say, I had that happen to me as well. So, so you're doing this project all year, but the receptions will start while the, uh, the portrait work continues. And the first one, I believe, is already scheduled. Is that yeah. right? First uh, exhibition locally is uh, scheduled, uh, you know, humble opening at a cafe one whole block from here on 4th Avenue between 35 and 36, a place called Cafe Nube. In Brooklyn. Uh-huh, in Sunset Park, uh, just half a block from the subway. Um, and, um, and that'll be March 4th. All are welcome. All of our receptions will be free and open to the public. Um, what time I, on March 4th? Oh gosh, we haven't determined that yet. You can go to, uh, to freeportraitproject.org for updates on future events and exhibitions. And thereafter, um, anytime we've got a, we turn out about 
17 portraits per month on average. And, um, and so there will be a fresh batch ready to go to another destination. And uh, by the end of March, when that show at Cafe Nube comes down, whether it's um, the Alphadilla Community Services in uh, Bay Ridge or the Muslim Community Center in Sunset Park or a branch of the Brooklyn Public Library uh, or any other participating venue that offers to host these local exhibitions, the paintings that the cafe will then shuffle over uh, with me in a Uber XL or some such vehicle and then installed at that location and, and they just begin to rotate and disperse to become ubiquitous and uh, hyper accessible. Uh, sort of the antithesis of one of those galleries where the door is always closed except Saturdays from noon to three. Uh, I want this to be work that people can see just about anywhere and everywhere and that, uh, you know, the idea of making this breathtakingly accessible to a mass audience is crucial. So we scheduled, I think, five and a half hours for this painting. And I am curious how you manage your time aiming to do 200 of these in a year. And this is a question, I suppose, for, for, for every artist and for all of us in our lives, how you manage your own time, how you decide when you're, uh, when you're done. Oh, um, that's a great question. Um, I came up as an illustrator, and when we were choosing between fine art and illustration back in, in school out in Oakland, California, they said, do you want to be a painter and an illustrator? I said, what's the difference? And they said, um, a painter can work on a painting for years and years. Illustrator's work is done when the FedEx man comes to pick it up. <laughs> and those are the constraints I got used to. Um, working with untrained models such as yourself, which I say with no disparagement, uh, folks who's, who are, it's not their job to sit still professionally. Um, but I found that about, oh, you're great at that. You're gifted. Um, but I find that most folks, um, four hours is about the max you can ask for anybody to be relatively still, especially in this town. I find that most folks are surprised um, at how peaceful it can be to have four hours in which they're not beholden to the needs of their children, their job. Um, our phones are silent. Our phones are turned off deliberately. And, um, and it's, it's really quite lovely. Um, even with folks who I know um, prior to, to them sitting in the chair, I'm often surprised at the things that I discover about them um, that I never thought to ask. What are the uh, most surprising conversations you've had in the course of doing this with people you know or with strangers? And what have been the, uh, the weirdest circumstances or ways people have responded to this? Because for most of us, for me certainly, uh, I, I am an amateur model, as gorgeous as I am. Uh, you know, I, I, I have no experience sitting for this long, uh, having a portrait done, any, any part of this. And I'm, I'm sure people react to it in some surprising or interesting ways. Um, as far as subject matter goes, uh, and let me have you back in position. Other way. There you are, and a little bit more face forward, a little bit down. Cock. 
There you are. Um, I usually say it's a good day in the office when we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about at dinner in polite conversation. Um, so if somehow with a, you know, a rabbi or somebody who works in tech, doesn't matter. Um, if we cover sex, drugs, religion, love, and um, death, then it's a good day. You know, we've, we've covered a lot. Um, the things that surprise me as far as unusual content are the things that I wouldn't think to expect out of a person based on their physical appearance alone. There's, there's a couple key moments in any session um, that I've come to identify and appreciate. One is what I call when we find out we're twinsies uh, to some degree, that there's a thing that me and the person in the chair that day have very much in common. And the other, which is what I call the hour of uncomfortable admission. And that's when uh, we each take a moment to admit something that we had previously conceived uh, about the person based on like what little we knew of them, if anything at all, which is like the gentlest form that I've found of uh, offloading of prejudice. Um, because prejudice is, um, it's an, it's an appropriately uh, kind of stigmatized thing to carry. And yet I think we all carry, you know, some prejudices that are, you know, so seemingly benign. Um, but since it's such a stigmatized thing, nobody wants to cop to it, um, which makes it hard to let go of. So in the interest of helping people to let go of it, I invite everybody to discuss these things, oftentimes by throwing myself onto that grenade first. I found out that if I ask you, when was the last time you pooped your pants? It might make somebody uncomfortable. They might say, well, I, this is not what I signed up for today. I don't know what this is, but now I want to leave this chair. Whereas if we're in conversation and it somehow comes up that, you know, we're talking about summer camp or, you know, some crazy shit when we're, you know, seven years old, I might be like, and then when I was seven, I, I pooped my pants on this occasion. And then sometimes people in the chair will be like, oh, that's crazy. That happened to me when I was nine, you know, and then we're twinsies. But Farah Soufrant, then a nurse, now a 57th Assembly District uh, member, elected official, um, came into my office in Crown Heights with a Starbucks cup of coffee. And I thought to myself, a Starbucks had just opened on Franklin Avenue recently, um, oh, she's a Starbucks girl. You know, and they were like much the bane of folks who were trying to support Bob and Betty's or the Brooklyn Coffee House across the street. And then she walked over and she handed me the coffee. And she said, here, I got this for you. And I said, oh, no coffee for you? And she said, no, I'm not a Starbucks girl. And I said, oh. So it sounds like you thought I was a Starbucks guy and I thought you were a Starbucks girl. I'm just too, you know, too damn polite to turn down a free cup of coffee. Uh, thank you for the coffee, by the way, that was delicious. And so that was the first thing I decided to, to offload that day and say, from just meeting you, I thought that you were a Starbucks girl. My apologies. And no disrespect to anybody who doesn't give a damn where their coffee comes from. Rusty, it's been a, a pleasure to be here. I got to take one peek at the portrait just before we started recording, a little more than halfway through. I must say, I, I like it a lot. I like it much more than my face, although I can see my face in it. 
And I believe I'm the only person who you have, like mouth open mid-sentence from the portraits I can see here. Uh, I do know, just looking around the room, that you have uh, a mother and a daughter who are uh, Haitian-American. You have two sisters, and you can really see the family resemblance in both who are Argentines, a husband and a wife, uh, who I would not have known that if you hadn't told me, naturally. And I'd just love to hear a bit about the uh, glimpses into the family, the connections that you get as you're spending time separately with each of these people, and just your thoughts on the ways in which perhaps some of this builds community and your reflections on... Uh, the people and how they relate to the place as you've, uh, as you've done this work. It is uh, one of the things people ask when they're just learning about this work is they say, can I get one of me and my partner? Um, can I get one of me and my child? Can we, can we be in there together? And I say, no, but yes. Uh, we can't put two people onto the same canvas because that takes up more space and that ends up with a bigger framed picture than all the others, which begs the question, why do these people get more canvas than I do in a project that's meant to demonstrate everybody's inherent equality, which is why I stick to one person per picture. They're all 18 by 24. They all take about four, four and a half hours to complete so that everybody gets equal standing, attention, uh, relevance, and uh, so on and so forth. However, if you have a partner, an extra person in your life that you would also say, we, I want one of them too, um, then they can apply as well. They can go to freeportraitproject.org and click apply, fill out the form, click submit, and then they are in the applicant pool for one of the remaining 181 spots after today. Um, I've found that the history of portraiture does tend to carry import for families and this notion of legacy. I ask everybody, and I'll ask you in a moment, um, how you would like to be remembered uh, for your time, not in a here lies Harry sort of way, but, but you know, this is you at this moment in time, and the things you have to say today uh, might seem mundane because it's just what you're covering today. But... Um, when looked at in retrospect 20, 30 years later, and um, your progeny, offspring, family, have this recording of you know, dad when he was 45, back when we lived in Brooklyn, as some people are transient and not long for this place, um, that it can act as a record um, for them, for their, for their heirs, for their, their family members. Um, and it's a, um, it's a treat for me to meet the people who made the people that I sit with. Uh, when people bring their parents to an exhibition and I can say, that's where you got that ocular uh, cavity bone right there. And uh, you have your dad's nose and your mom's chin, you know. Uh, I like to see that. Um, and, um, and it's... It's a beautiful thing to watch people share. I, I had a, a pair of husbands who deliberately did their portraits in profile so they could face each other on the dining room wall. Um, and I joked that, you know, if they ever get into a terrible row, they can switch positions and they'd be like, I can't even look at you right now. We face away from each other. And, you know, I, I want to take 
take a moment to, to say a special thanks to, to my family, my wife, Megan, and my new and exciting stepchildren, Max and Oscar. Um, since we all moved in together in the pandemic, we had a lot of downtime to, to get to know one another as cohabitants and a new fam squad, as we say. So now that I'm full tilt in production mode uh, on this enormous kind of Herculean effort of building this project, um, they've never seen me so busy and they've never seen me so not at home. So I, I, I thank them for, for their patience uh, while I recalibrate to this life and still remember to get home and uh, help out with the dishes and walk in the dog and, and um, yeah, big ups to my own family. Rusty, thank you so much. And I'll let you finish up with me so that you can, uh, you can get back and have some time with your family. Thank you. Thanks for being here and thanks for letting me share. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our host this episode was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kamara. Thank you to our guest, artist Rusty Zimmerman, founder of the Free Portrait Project. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.